Grace and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters in Christ. George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. How many of you knew that already? <laughs> ah, I see, we have a smart group with us this morning. How do you know? How do you know? Teachers, somebody said. We have writings, right? Things that he said, things that people heard him say. We have writings about him. We have pictures of him. If you still carry cash, he's on your $1 bill, of course. We think we know what he looks like. When George Washington comes up in conversation, as he does every day, you guys don't say to each other, yeah, I, I believe he existed, sure. Or, you know what, I think George Washington is more a state of mind, a concept. Or I think that George, there's a little bit of George Washington in all of us, isn't there? No. You know he was a person, a president. And that's how you put it. You know he was. No further proof is necessary. So here's the question. Why do we require more proof that God exists than George Washington. You know people in the world don't believe in God. Of course, that's a problem. Why? We have writings of God. We have his word right here. We have artist depictions of what God, was, God could look like, even though no one has seen him. We have all this evidence, you could say, of God's existence, yet people still don't believe. Why are, why are we willing to take so much less evidence and believe together that George Washington, a guy who was alive when none of us were, existed, and yet believing in God is a little bit more of a problem? It's because the stakes are much higher. George Washington doesn't care if you believe that he exists. He's dead. He doesn't care. He has no opinions. God cares a lot. George Washington never asked you to trust in his name in times of suffering. God does. George Washington never asked you to believe something that you can't see with your eyes necessarily. God does that for us all the time. God wants us to trust in him and trust in his love, but why is that such a challenge sometimes? This book of the Bible, the letter written to the Hebrews, was written by an anonymous, very intelligent church leader who had compassion, was very well learned about the Old Testament, and cares about the people he's writing to very, very much. Because they're going through something. The people, the Christian groups that he's writing to are undergoing a lot of pressure to give up their faith. The surrounding culture of their time is telling them that it is so dumb to believe that Jesus was actually God's son. To believe that Jesus' death on the cross was not just some horrific execution, but actually was the moment at which you're saved. How foolish is that, they were saying. And they were putting pressure on them, threat threatening violence against these Hebrew Christians. Give up Jesus. Give up your faith. And why shouldn't they? Young lady goes off to college. She gets embedded in the party culture. 
she learns firsthand that actions and activities that she has learned from her parents and from her church to call sinful are actually kind of fun, are kind of enjoyable. Middle-aged man has been working his whole life. He's exhausted. He's looking forward to retirement. And he's not exactly appreciative of the attitude he gets from his congregation when he shows up on a Sunday morning. So he starts to think, why don't I just sleep in? Why don't I just skip it? A socialite is out with her friends. She is tired of experiencing the friction that her faith is creating with her friends. And so she finally decides, what's the point? I'm going to stop bringing up Jesus in conversation. I'm going to stop having to apologize for my beliefs. I'm, I'm going to stop having to explain everything I believe. And she starts to drink just as much as her friends do, talk smack about people just as much as her friends do, and give men at the bar the up-down just as much as her friends do. These people go through these experiences, they make these decisions, they kind of fade away from putting faith first in their life, and then they realize that lightning from heaven isn't going to smite them down. When faith creates friction in our lives, what's keeping us from folding, from just floating away and giving in to the pressure? You ever have this experience when you're reading a good book, maybe playing a video game, or hanging out with some friends, and you look at the clock and all of a sudden, hours and hours have passed by. What happened? You say, oh, I lost track of time. Well, let's think about it in a little bit different of a way this morning. What happened is you got myopic, nearsighted. The entirety of your attention, your entire brain space was occupied with the story that you were reading, with the conversation you were having, and time to you stopped mattering. You got lost in the moment, nearsighted, myopic. It can happen for good times when you're having a great time. It can happen when you're in pain, can't it? If you have to do a plank and hold yourself up, for one minute. All it is is one minute, but that could be the worst minute of your entire life, right? The Hebrew Christians were very tempted to become myopic, nearsighted, to look at the pain they were experiencing in the moment as if that was the only thing that mattered. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, don't do it. Don't forget the bigger picture. Don't let this pressure that you are under, this friction that you are experiencing in your life to cause you to forget what's most important. Because the college student at the party isn't thinking about the bigger picture. She's thinking about how much fun she's having in the moment, right? That man who wakes up on Sunday afternoon having skipped church isn't thinking about how this is going to affect his faith life in the long term. He's thinking about how recovered he is, how, how ready he is for the work week. And the socialite out with her friends isn't necessarily all racked up with guilt about not bringing Jesus up, not living differently. She might be enjoying the freedom that she feels that she has by letting go of that friction. The Hebrew, writer to the Hebrews is reminding us 
that the antidote for becoming nearsighted or the antidote to folding under pressure is to remember what this is all about, why we are here, who in our life really matters, and what foundation we are based on. That's what he's doing for the Christians that he writes to when he says these words. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed out of God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You have your faith, and I have my facts, people say, right? What are they saying when they say that? You have your wishy-washy, subjective, feelings-based beliefs. I have my hard and fast, concrete facts that are objective and that you can't argue with. The idea is that facts are concrete, faith is emotional, subjective. The writer to the Hebrews disagrees with both ideas. He says, by faith we understand something about how we all got here, how the universe was created. You're probably aware that there are some things taught out there in our schools that are different than what the Bible says about how we all got here, about creation. So who's right? Well, take our George Washington example again. How do you know he was a real person? You weren't alive when he was. You didn't shake his hand. You didn't hear him talk. You didn't see who he was. But at some point, your teacher told you who he was, or your parents, or you read a book about him, and you decided you weren't going to hold that source in disbelief. You were just going to trust that source wherever they came from. You'd, you decided that the source that told you about George Washington was trustworthy. But you know that there are a lot of things out there about George Washington that people still say that are false, like that legend that he skipped a rock across the Potomac River. Never happened. Or that the, one of the most famous ones is that he had wooden dentures. He did not. How did those fables persist? Someone, a false source, stated their case at some point, and people started to believe them. It is possible that you can believe and take something as a fact when it's wrong. It matters what source you get it from. God is the only 100% reliable source for any information. How do you know? Well, first of all, he's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He does not tell lies. That's not in his nature to lie. And even if he could, he's not going to lie to you. He's not going to lead you astray because he loves you too much. Look at the facts. How did God show in a factual, objective way that he loves you? He created you. He gave you life when he didn't have to. When you rebelled against him, he redeemed you from your sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth 
living a perfect life in your place, suffering a sinner's death on a cross and being laid in a grave like some kind of animal for you. And then bursting forth on that first Easter Sunday, triumphant over death and the grave, not for his benefit, not because he needed to, but because that's what it took to save you from your sin, to liberate you from the death that your sins deserve, from an eternity in hell. Look at what God has done for you. Do you need any more evidence or proof that you are dearly loved and cared for by the eternal God? These are not just feelings, brothers and sisters. These are facts. That God created you is a fact. That God loves you is a fact and that God is always going to be there for you and support you and provide for you and protect you are all facts. And if you ever doubt them or if you ever call them into question or if you ever don't feel at 100% that God loves you, all you have to do is go back to what he has said, the promises he has made in his word for you reminding you again and again of his facts of the facts of his love and forgiveness and salvation this is how we keep ourselves from becoming myopic nearsighted the writer to the hebrews wants us to take abraham as an example abraham had a pretty good life before god got involved He was rich. He lived on a big compound with his family. He had flocks. He had herds. He had people working for him. He was pretty comfortable. And then God shows up and says, I want you to leave all that and go to a land you've never seen before, the promised land called Canaan, modern-day Israel, and I'm going to give it to you and to your children, to your offspring. And you guys know, every one of you knows how difficult and stressful it is to move even when you know exactly where you're moving to, even when you know exactly what the house is like, it's still stressful, right? Abraham had no clue what life was going to be like on the road or at his final destination. Yet he took off. He obeyed. Why? What got him through those difficult days on the road in a foreign land being treated as a stranger? It was the fact that he had the promises of God to hold on to every day. That indeed this new land was going to be great, was going to be worth the wait, was going to be worth the suffering. He hung on to the 100% reliable word of God. And that got him through. Or another example, take his wife Sarah, who wanted a child, wanted a baby boy. Yeah, there was a lot of cultural pressure for her to have a child so that she could continue on the family name of Abraham, but this is what she wanted as well. And she was getting older and older and wondering if God was going to do something, if he was going to give her a child. And finally, what got her through those days was knowing that God delivers on his promises. And then one day she gives birth to baby Isaac. And through Isaac's son, another son, another son, all the way down to Jesus, Isaac, her son, was the ancestor of our Savior. 
so that through faith in Christ we could all be considered Sarah's children because we trust in the same God that she did. And so her descendants are more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. How did she get through it? Relying on God's promises. How does that college student suffer through sticking out like a sore thumb by not embracing college party culture? How does that middle-aged man make it through the work of getting up for church Sunday after Sunday when his body is saying, I want to stay in bed, I want to get more rest? How does the socialite make it through the friction that her faith is creating with her friends? It's keeping in mind the bigger picture. That God and his promises will prevail. That finally, God promises that no matter what you are going through, whatever it is, things will get better. Even if they don't get better right now, even if they don't get better in this life, you have a city awaiting you, the writer says, whose architect and builder is God. He's talking about heaven, where you will rest where there will be no more friction, no more stress, no more anxiety. Rest assured, that is a promise God will deliver on. He's never failed you before. He's not going to fail you now. That one day you will rest. But actually, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to find rest in God's promises. If you're experiencing that friction right now, that anxiety and stress and pain right now, look again at God's promises. Lay hold of God's promises that he loves you, he will deliver you, that he provides for you. And let your soul rest right now because you will never be disappointed when you put your trust in God. You will never be disappointed when you consider God worth the wait, worth the suffering. Because God always delivers on every one of his promises. Faith is not a wishy-washy feeling. It's that part of your heart that the Holy Spirit has caused to take hold of the facts to convince you and assure you that you are loved, that God is with you, and that God will deliver you. Rest assured. Amen.